Hello everybody, welcome to today's episode of the Dharma Toolkit Daily with me Chandra Dasa, all my lonesome today in terms of the team. But I'm very happy to be in this one because I'm in with some lovely poets and friends that I know well, poetic spirits, poetic souls, who I'll introduce you to in a little minute. First of all, hope you're well wherever you are. It's quite something to do a community toolkit podcast every day and just have to bring everybody to mind. Not that that's a chore, but it's nice to have the practice, you know, of every day. How is everybody that we're connected to you? You're connected to us. And we hope that wherever you are, however challenging it may be, it helps to know that there are people bearing you in mind, thinking about you, seeing themselves in the same community as you are. And I hope today's conversation will brighten your day with some ironic points of light which is one of the central images of today's episode. We'll talk about that in a little minute more, but I'll welcome our guests first. They're all in rather beautiful rooms. I can see them on Zoom. You can't see them on Zoom, but maybe we'll hear a little bit about their setting, their jeweled setting for their jeweled being. And we'll start with Sacha Leela in Bristol in the UK. How are you, Sacha Leela? I'm well, thank you, Chandra Dasa. Yes, I'm living here in this little flat with Pranimati. And out the back, I've got my blue shed or I go to write and sing, and at the front I've got the park, so I, I do feel fortunate. But I've been pretty full on because I'm covering the Mitra convening in Bristol. It was temporarily, and now it's for the foreseeable, which is actually a very enjoyable thing to do. Lots of connection and lots of hard work. I and mean, we've hoisted all the Bristol classes up onto Zoom, like all the other Buddhist centres, so I'm certainly not bored. And for people who don't know, a Mitra is somebody who's made a particular commitment in our community to see themselves as part of the wider sangha friend really is what it means and somebody who's convening those people you're not you're not herding them into pens etc you're looking after their well-being that's right yeah we have a buddhist community here in bristol and when somebody's been coming along for a while and tried it out as with tree rat in the centers across the world if they feel like they want to practice ongoingly alongside us then they can ask to become a mitra which is the sanskrit word for friend and that's making a provisional commitment to practice in this context and we have a ceremony for that and each centre, each Buddhist centre has somebody who helps to look after the well-being of those beings, one could say, in terms of yeah, opportunities to get together and study and practice. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Can't think of anybody better whose job it is, is to be somebody's friend, which is pretty great as jobs go, job descriptions go. Somebody else who's also very good at that is our friend Subhadasi, who's also joining us today. Another poet, another beautiful mind. Welcome, Subhadasi. How are you? How is your lockdown? Hello there, Chandra Dasa. Thank you for the welcome. I am the chair of Brighton Buddhist Centre, which is a big urban centre on the south coast of England. But as I speak to you, I am in a studio at the bottom of my garden in a little village called Ringma, which is on the South Downs. And if I look out of my window, I can see a trampoline and a big rope swing, which my 10-year-old twin kids are often treacherously swinging from. So yeah, I'm locked down with my family, my partner and my two kids, and trying to find ways to keep Brighton Buddhist Centre up and running whilst also being locked down. So the Buddhist Centre itself is closed down. So normally we operate out of the centre of town, but now like probably every other Buddhist centre in the world, we're finding ways to stay connected with people whilst we're not physically there. Now, 
People can't see your video, unfortunately, because if they could, they would see the amazing portrait of somebody on the back wall of your room, which I asked you about before. But I'd love you to tell people about it on here because it's so fab. Yeah, so I've got a, a number of images on my back wall. So as well as being a poet and a chair, I also take photography quite seriously. And quite a few years ago, I took a photograph of my mum, Jean Eileen Dixon. She passed away quite a long time ago, but it's a photograph of her perched on the arm of my dad's armchair, looking quite northern and imperious and quite lovely as well. So that's the image that Chandra Das is referring to. So it's very nice to have an image of my old mum to remind me of her on my studio wall. Her arms are folded in the best way possible that only a northern mum could pull off. It's like, I'm not going to mess with her. That's not going to happen. Subhanasi, an old friend of yours is our final guest today, an old friend of mine now at this point too, but I think even older for you, in the far southwest of England. Nanda Vajra, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? How is life in rural Devon? Thank you, Chandradasa. Very nice to be with you all. Yeah, I was just reflecting before I say what my lockdown is like. I'm just reflecting. I think I met Subhanasi 30 years ago now, probably this month. 30 years ago in a retreat centre in Spain, where I was on the long retreat during which I got ordained. And Sibidassi was part of the team there. So that's when I first met him. And then we really got to know each other when we both were part of the team that moved up to Newcastle, to start the Newcastle Buddha Centre. I'm not from the north, I'm from the south, but we spent quite a long time up there together. So yeah, very nice to have that recollection. So I'm not in the north anymore. I'm down in the southwest of England. I'm about 10 miles west of Exeter, just on the southern lip of Dartmoor. Not allowed up there at the moment, but there's a nearby hill I can climb and can see Dartmoor a few miles away. My lockdown circumstances are very fortunate in many ways. I live quite rurally with my partner. If I glance out the window, I can see the goldfinches feeding at the bird table. And if I waited long enough, I'd see the family of rats come out from the log pile and hoover up beneath the bird feeder. Yes, yeah, so I've got a lovely garden to walk around in and a very lovely countryside to exercise in. I sort of feel in a COVID-free bubble in some respects, but my work continues. I work for the Future Dharma Fund, which is part of the Tree Ratna Buddhist community, as Chandra Das will know particularly. And putting it very simply, we ask people for money. And then when they give it to us, we ask other people if they would like it. And then we give it to them. It's not quite as straightforward as that, but something along those lines. And then the other thing I do is uh, there's a little small Buddhist group in Exeter. I'm involved in that. And we've been, as everybody else has, shifting our activities online. I was sort of thinking over the weekend, I've been talking for a while. Beneath the sort of sense of it's all right was just a sort of theme of disquiet which was quite sort of persistent in a way. Over the weekend, I realised actually some of it was fear, but I was very reluctant to call it that. I thought, oh, no, I just call it disquiet because then that, well, that seems all right. And I sort of thought, well, I shouldn't really be experiencing fear because my circumstances are so fortunate. But I thought, no, it is fear. And it was sort of interesting just to go, yeah, that's what it is, at least in part. Curiously, the next day, I didn't experience it anymore. So... But there was something in just sort of going, yeah, this is what's happening. Forget the idea of you shouldn't be experiencing it as a Buddhist or because I'm a mature man, apparently. No, it's fear. That's what it is. So, yeah, there is some of that around. 
Mm. It's been a bit of a feature in a way of these conversations is just hearing people checking in from their different locations, physically, geographically, but also emotionally, mentally. In a recent podcast, we had a poem by Tony Hoagland called The Word. And there's a little phrase in there, which I've heard in other contexts before, the image is the heart in exile. And that image of the heart being in exile seems quite redolent at the moment for a lot of people. Whatever their circumstances, whether they're rural or urban or with people or alone, the heart itself feels a bit removed somehow from its normality. And that's probably quite a good way into the theme today. Uh, the theme came out of a conversation that Nandavadra and I had by email about a podcast episode. And Nandavadra, you suggested a couple of images. One was a traditional Buddhist image, we'll no doubt come to later, of Indra's net, which is a beautiful image about the interconnectedness of all things and all things being reflected in each other and the whole universe having something of that nature. You also suggested an image from the English poet W.H. Auden, from one of his really well-known poems, which he wrote at the start of the Second World War. The poem is actually written in New York City, so quite far away, in a way, from rural Devon or the South Downs or Bristol. It's just titled September the 1st, 1939. It's got a very famous line in it about being at the end of a low, dishonest decade. And that sense of apprehension and fear that you mentioned, Mandavich, is definitely present in the poem. Just the apprehension at the outbreak of war. Auden's in exile from the UK. He's in this big, grimy city in New York, somewhat removed from the war, but with all of that coming on the horizon. And you'd suggested an image from later in the poem, which is Ironic Points of Light, which will give us the title for today's episode. So I thought, first of all, it'd be nice to hear the section of the quite long poem where Auden talks about ironic points of light, and then maybe hear from you a bit about why that was in your mind alongside Indra's net as a starting point for a conversation. Okay, well, I, I thought I'd just read the last two verses, actually. Just to say, in doing this, I do feel a bit apprehensive. I'm in this conversation with three published poets, I think. So <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not a sort of realm I find myself often turning to, but sometimes I do. Having said that, I'll read it. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizens or the police. We must love one another or die. Defenceless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them, of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. Hard to find the words. It just really touches into that longing for that kind of authentic connection that brings those points of light. <sighs> Hard to find the words. I just felt very deeply touched hearing what you read and I haven't got anything very eloquent to say because it's a bit of a wordless kind of experience, really, which is often where poetry leaves me. Yeah, it's a very strong bit of writing, isn't it? In a way, lifted out of context, that somehow seems even stronger. Weirdly, I mean, I know it's got the history of literary tradition behind it. I'm in the United States, for people listening who don't know, I live on the East Coast of the United States. And it was a very big poem in the United States around the time of 
It's when it sort of came back into the public awareness, probably for the first time in many years, certainly at scale. You know, obviously, people who were interested in Auden and poetry in general might have been aware of it, but the general public heard quite a bit of that poem and that section of the poem too, around 9-11. So it's an interesting poem to come back to during a pandemic when we must love one another or die. It feels a little bit closer to your face somehow. It's like pressed up against the skyscraper glass or the window screen of that. I was reading an essay by Auden recently and there's a quote at the start from Nietzsche where he says something like, we have art in order that we may not perish from truth. And there's something in that poem, isn't there, just about sometimes reality and truth seems a little bit too close for comfort. And there's something you can put in between that mediates the experience. So Nanda Vajra, why was that particularly in your mind? When I wrote you and said, what would you like to talk about? You wrote back and said, the things that are on my mind are Indra's net and the ironic points of light. And I could see the connection when you wrote the two images, but I was kind of curious as to what was in your heart with them, as it were. Well, I mean, both of them are very beautiful images. Indra's net is an unequivocally beautiful image. Auden's poem has some very beautiful images in it or very stirring images in it. And both are affirmative in a way. I really like the last line of the poem, showing an affirming flame. That sense of affirmation, that in the face of all this negation and despair and the sense of being beleaguered, or the aspiration or the desire to show an affirming flame. And I just feel, well, that's what I want to do. I suppose the poem's also got, as you, I think you were saying, it's actually like, well, yeah, this is how things are. They are difficult. They are bleak even. But one can still find an affirmative response. And I think for me, that's what Buddhism's about. It's something about facing up to the reality, but also an affirmative response to the reality of things. And then with Indra's net, you've touched on the image, but this idea of a vast net extending throughout the universe, unlimited. And then at each eye of the net, at each intersection, there sits this beautiful, brilliant perfect jewel, which then reflects every other jewel in the net. And it's trying to draw out the interconnected, the interdependent, the intercausal nature of all things. I suppose we're living at a time where even though we're socially isolated, we're doing that because we're deeply interconnected, ironically. You know, we're deeply interdependent. Most of the time, we don't really experience that or face up to it. It's a very strong message at the moment. The two images marry up to me because of the jewel and the ironic point of light and something beautiful about them and affirmative about them. In a way, they've just been sort of sitting there in the corner of my mind to some extent or other. And when you asked, well, what could you talk about? Somehow they came up. And did you have a particular relationship to that poem from the past? That's why it occupied the corner of your mind. Was it an important poem to you? Did you learn it at school? What was the... Uh, No, actually, I think it goes back to Newcastle as well, because the third person in the quartet that went up there was Nora Priya. Nora Priya was and still is a big fan of Auden. And I think in a way, he sort of turned me to Auden and then I encountered the poem. And it's just got such a strong affirmative message in it. Because I can experience the bleakness or I can experience bleakness in myself. Then there's also this other side, that sort of desire to be affirmative. So, yeah, it just sort of speaks to me in some way. When Nandavadra spoke then about the provenance of the poem for him, going back to Newcastle and our mutual friend Narapriya, I was very strongly reminded. So in, I think, 1990. 
three, four of us went to Newcastle to set up a Buddhist centre and had no connection with the city at that time. We'd just gone up for a weekend some months before and decided that's where we were going to go. And we rented this funny little house on Drummond Terrace in North Shields. And there seemed to be these endless afternoons where Narapriya would be reading Auden. And I think he infected me and Nandavajra and probably Dharma Gosha, the fourth person of the quartet who were up there to set up Newcastle Buddhist Centre. So that's where the poem takes me back to. I think there's something for me about, you know, I very much relate to this idea of the affirming flame. I, sadly, in the last few days, an extended family member of mine has died of COVID-19. And so I'm trembling with the grief of that relay, and I expect I will be for some time. So the line, we must love one another or die, it feels more pertinent to rewrite it as we must love one another and die. And so there's something for me about in the face of death, what is it that we can do? And I think that we can love one another. That is a real thing. And the ironic points of light for me are something to do with the fact, the irony is that we know how little we can do in a human life. Yet we also know that little we can do can make a huge difference. So that feels like the irony, almost like the vow of the Bodhisattva to save all sentient beings. What a preposterous vow to make. But in a way, I don't remember who said this, and one of you might be able to help me, but aren't all of the best aims in life impossible to achieve? So for me, part of the irony of those little flashes in the darkness are we have so little agency, but at the same time, what we do with that agency, what we do with our action, can make all the difference in the world. In a way, we can show an affirming flame, or we can crumple out of our emptiness and frightenedness. We have that choice. It's not always an easy choice, and I wouldn't want to sound glib in saying we have a choice, but we do. We are able to choose. I was going to ask, yeah, about that very thing you've talked about, the ironic points of light. I was interested in, yeah, how you guys were reading it. And I wondered for you, Nandavadra, what is it about the ironic points of light? Is it what Subhadasi said or is there more to it for you? There's something ironic is something about almost going against the grain or something like that or going against the current. It's the same as what Subhadasi says. It's like you're going to flash out even <laughs> if there doesn't seem to be much point. Yeah. Satya Leela, I'm aware looking at your video screen, one of the main things in my mind from hearing the image about ironic points of light is just actually the visual image of it, the darkened globe and the flashing points of light, which obviously relate to Indra's net, but also seem a bit like a presage of, say, the internet. Everybody huddled in their space with their little illuminated screen and messaging each other. And when we came on this call, what I noticed about the room behind you was just how full of these beautiful Buddhist images it is on the wall. And the location of a person inside an image seems to be something that's particularly important at the moment. Auden sitting in his dive bar in New York City and sort of going to live inside this image, which he's also bringing out of himself. And I'm very struck with you get yourself surrounded in the background by these beautiful, they're called tankas traditional images of Buddha figures, Bodhisattva figures. Is there something for you about sitting located inside a nest or a beautiful nest of images that relates to all of this? Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. I really wasn't into any of these images when I first came along, which interestingly was in 1993, the year when you guys were heading up to Newcastle. And I was involved for a couple of years and I loved meditating and I was fascinated by the Dharma, but I couldn't understand why we needed all these, what I thought of then as men in funny hats. But gradually 
as I sort of came into relationship with them all, really found a felt sense in myself of these different qualities that they embody. So behind me on the wall is, there are actually two tankers, two paintings of Padmasambhava, famed for transforming demons and bringing the Dharma to Tibet. And he's the magician. And one of them is actually of the eight different forms. And I think, yeah, your question, Chandra Dasa, about being located within a nest of images, it's a beautiful image. I think we often talk about the image of a mandala, which literally means a magic circle. And Sangharach has described that as an arrangement of images that has something of value in the middle. And I think I find in terms of my my life now, practicing the Dharma, that I feel like I'm located within this net that has these extraordinary figures in different locations. Some of them are actually extraordinary figures who are alive and well, three of whom are here on the screen with me today. But I think I experience it extending back through time. I mean, Padmasambhava was a historical figure, they say, as well as a mythological figure. And these different dimensions, really, of things being much bigger than I used to think. It's good to hear such, Lila, this idea of just locating yourself in that way and it going through time and space or beyond time and space. In a way, <laughs> you're both in relationship to your friends, your job as a Mitra convener, and there's a golden thread between that and your relationship to a semi-mythological or semi-historical figure like Padmasambha or even the Buddha as a quasi-mythological, quasi-historical figure. And yeah, there's something about going to live inside of images, picking your images and going to live inside of them for your life that seems quite central to this kind of practice. One of the things that's come up often in these conversations is the very idea of imaginative connection. As Nandavadra was saying, the irony being you've been asked to stay at home to protect other people also to protect yourself and the people you love, but you're just recognizing that you're in a relationship with people regardless of how you may feel about that. And there's something communal about the effort. Imaginative connection has been coming up time and time again as almost like a threshold people keep going to in their own reflections and considerations about what it is to be in relationship, but also on your own. Yeah, I think I can connect with that, Chandra Dasa. I've had a Rumi poem going around my head for a few weeks, and I'd like to read it to you. And I think in a way what it does is it connects with the power of the imagination and imaginal connection, but it sort of takes it a little bit further for me. So I think that we can shelter in images, but I think images can also be used to transform ourselves and others and move us in the direction of other people. It's a short poem, and it very much connects also to me with the world of the Auden poem. In the Auden poem, he talks about being lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night. And I think that, as you have said, I think that fear is a strong theme in our world at the moment. And this is where the poem begins. So I'll read it. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down the dulcimer. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And I think for me, don't open the door to the study and begin reading. There's something for me about that's kind of saying, don't neurotically check Facebook. It's sort of suggesting don't contract within ourselves. And the dulcimer is a musical instrument. But for me, it's a means of imaginative connection. That's really what it is. But the line, let the beauty we love be what we do, it's what's really been going around my head. My name means the one who sees the beautiful. So that's my job. But can the beauty we love be what we do? Can we somehow turn that imaginative connection into action, into doing? Can it become a verb? So it's not a passive 
contemplation, but it somehow moves us and moves through us to kneel and kiss the ground in so many different ways. And for me, kneeling and kissing the ground is about loving others, realizing that the world that we live in has, as well as fear, there are things that are sacred and beautiful that can move us beyond ourselves. So that's the affirming flame, I think, of the Auden poem written in a very different way by a very, very different poet. Just struck by, you know, that image of kneeling and kissing the ground. And you could think in terms of paying respect or connecting or paying deference or I really like that, you know, you use the word sacred, you know, having a sense of the sacred. And it's not a term that I'm accustomed to using or I think is generally used, but it does seem important to have some sense of that in these times placing ourselves in a sort of sacred context, which is perhaps something that we could draw out in our practice of Buddhism. I live in a part of the world, you go to places and they refer to it as a sacred landscape. There's a whole, you know, you get these stone circles and stone rows, and it's quite striking and has quite an effect to sort of occupy that landscape. Perhaps particularly where the sacred has lost its significance or life is sort of being leached off the sacred just to do with the material or survival even you know this sense of the sacred takes me back to the glimpse i think i had at the age of 17 of what led me eventually to practicing the dharma i was in a relationship with an artist he was quite a bit older than me and there was something about the quality of his attention that really communicated something to me and i remember at the time i thought it was to do with zen i didn't really understand it but it was definitely this sense that it is the quality of our attention that can make things sacred And that's one of my golden threads that I've just followed up and down in and out of different things through the decades. And I know it's been a strong thread for Ratna Vandana that she's been talking about in the middle of this being divine online retreat because she has this same practice of really wanting every act to be an act that makes sacred whoever it is and whatever it is one is engaging with. And that point about the quality of attention, I think, is completely fascinating. Yes, for anybody who doesn't know, this podcast has been recorded during one of our home retreats, which is on a series of meditations. They're almost like different, very beautiful camera angles on love, like how to practice love, these different qualities, kindness, compassion, sort of resonating with joy with people, a sense of equanimity, everybody being in the same existential position. And yeah, Rana Vandana has been leading the retreat with us. And she did it originally in your community, didn't she? It's actually in Bristol for us some years ago. And it's kind of amazing actually watching people around the world choosing to spend their time on computers, reflecting on the nature of love together. It's like if you'd said to everybody six weeks ago, guess what's going to happen? You know, nobody would believe you. It would be ludicrous, you know? And yet here we are. It's sort of amazing. Another angle to this, the other side of the image. Go back to Auden's experience sitting in this dive bar in New York City. So it's a grim setting. It's the first day of the war. He's presumably in all sorts of turmoil about choosing to be in the United States rather than in England, where he's from. And he does, in very much the way you were talking about there, Satchel, he finds his way through his reflections and his ruminations to this point about an affirming flame and the urgent necessity to love in the face of it all. But there is also quite a warning in that poem. I mean, the poem is also a strong warning about what can happen, because here we are, that's what he's saying, is here we are, it's happened you know, the First World War didn't solve the problem. And actually, that's not far away at the moment as a sense, right? You're watching various governments respond in different ways. I was remembering when you were reading Subhidassi, the poem by Rumi, where he says, I don't like it here. I want to go back. I don't like it here. I want to go back. 
And then he says, just be quiet and sit down. The reason is you're drunk and this is the edge of the roof. And there's the sense of like, there's something else about, again, being up against the glass, isn't there? Like reality being that close to you, which is of the nature of a warning. And it's almost like you can't get yourself into the right shape to love unless you really see the suffering, unless you really see the possibility for dukkha, as we would call it. Yeah, it reminds me of actually many years ago being on retreat with Ratna Vandana. And when you were just saying about, yeah, when you're really up against it, I remember it wasn't very long after her mother had died. And she just described so eloquently the way it just stripped everything back to the essentials, to what's really fundamental. And that's certainly, I think, part of my experience at the moment. There are so many things that don't matter in the face of what's happening at the moment. You know, do what you think it's time for. It's like, what is it time for now? And there's some camera angles on love. I think that's a brilliant way of describing one of the things that's happening, one of the things we can do. Yeah. There's also something for me about the searing honesty of Rumi. You know, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. And I'm aware I, like many people, I'm sort of a bit existentially challenged at the moment, you know, and disturbed in various ways. And last night I was awake for a couple of hours from two till four in the morning. I was aware that I could contract in that time and worry about not getting to sleep, worry about why I was worrying, worry about every, et cetera. And actually, after some, I suppose, engaging in meditation, there was a sense in which that time became fruitful for me because I was able to contemplate what was going on for myself, but also connect with the world. You know, in a way, what was going on for me connected me with what's going on for all of us in this time empathizing with the fact that we're in a very strange situation and we don't know whether normal is ever going to come back. So there's something for me about the honesty of admitting where we're at. That can also open up riches, you know, a little bit like Ratna Vandana's mum's death that Satchalili was referring to. It can strip us back in a really good way, even though we may feel quite uncomfortable with admitting where it might be that we're at just at the moment. So Dossi, can I ask, it's fine if this is too personal, it just occurred to me listening to you talk there, in relationship to that honesty, what's it like having kids at the moment, just from following you on Twitter at quite a rambunctious age, <laughs> just from seeing your reports from the front with your kids? That existential challenge, you having the space for that during the night, you having your own sense of mature grown-up practice around it, presumably that has to come into a different kind of relationship with young children and just helping them parse out their fear and their sense of confusion, etc. Well, I think that I suppose what we're doing in our house is we've got some routines that have been established for a long time that are serving as well. So there are some rhythms and routines like we eat together. They're not complicated routines. And we make sure that we spend enough time with the kids that communication can happen. I think that that's one of the ways. I mean, addressing things directly, like I tried some direct questioning this morning. I said to Edith when we were lying in bed at about seven o'clock and Kathy and Foster had gone to make the tea because it was their turn. And I said to Edith, are you worried about anything, Edith? And she said, no. And in a way, that's not the way to do it. I knew it wouldn't be. But in a way, one picks up, I suppose. It's a matter of that quality of attention, I think, that Satchalila was wearing to. It's like, how do I remain alive to these beings and be aware that there's a lot going on for them, like there is for me? And also finding a way to be in the role of father and to be the nurturer, but also not pretending that I had a good night's sleep last night not pretending that a member of our extended family has died, not pretending that it's not really weird for these very social children to be locked in a house and not seeing their mates. So again, there's something about an honesty in our imperfect ways, sort of connecting with that. 
And I think out of that comes a connection. Out of that honesty comes a connection on a good day, in a good hour. Obviously, it's not always like that, but I think that's what we aspire towards. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's great. That's a very practical question of how do you build relationship with human beings out of honesty and connection. The way you were saying with Edith, it's like you're trying to be aware of what's going on for her. You're not hiding what's going on for you. You're not pretending things are other than they are. That seems to be quite an urgent question for people generally just now is what do I do? There's a hyper availability of resources in a way. You can get almost anything you want almost instantly on the internet. And at the same time, that question comes up all the time is what do I do? What do I actually do with my psyche, with my mind, with my heart? With my relationships how do you bear people in mind how do you connect with people that you both know and don't know how do we take part in a community that's worldwide in a way that actually feels like it makes a practical difference to us following on from what Subadasi said it's like the thread that carries right through is about authenticity and I think it's stepping into the courage to tell it like it is well like you were saying at the start of the podcast Chandradasa if we can have that courage to step into a more authentic naked relationship it's uncomfortable but I found it so interesting these different zoom contexts that we've been in sometimes it can feel really sixes and sevens and it's like oh you know with my chapter it's my group of friends that I meet with every week we practice together sometimes very six and sevens and other times it's like whoa no we're right there I can really feel my heart open and there's a magic and there's a mysteriousness in that as well. Sometimes it's like that door swings open and sometimes it just doesn't for whatever reason. So there's partly that patience, trusting that actually there's the waiting that's an aspect of it too. Yeah. And Devendra, have you got anything on the sense of how to stay in broad connection with people, particularly through your work? You can't do effective fundraising for a whole community globally if you don't actually have an experience of why that matters to people. It's not an abstraction. It's interesting, isn't it? I think a lot of fundraising is based on stories. I don't mean stories as in fiction. I mean people telling you about their lives. That's when we feel connected. That's when we feel motivated to give, isn't it? We don't respond to abstract asks. We respond to personal asks where we well, we feel that sense of connection and empathy. So I think a lot of fundraising is based on that, but also being motivated for doing the work is you know having that awareness of people's lives and I think just hearing about people and what they're living with as they're trying to face that you know sort of brings it alive and brings that connection in. I've had this sort of interesting experience I found my mind populated a lot by people from my past even people I haven't had connections with for decades you know and part of me I mean I don't know I will I might do it part of me wants to actually connect with them but also I want to be able to say something more than just oh, well, hi, I hope you're doing all right. I want to find a way, which I don't find easy at all, is trying to just dip a bit deeper than that and saying, this is extraordinary, isn't it? And I'm finding this difficult. And it's having that sort of level of connection as well. So hearing about people's experience and honouring that and being loyal and, you know, just reaching out in connection, I guess. I feel in some ways that's one of the things that we can do. It's interesting. It reminds me of this whole area of exemplification. That's one of the things you can do is just live out the act of love that Odin's talking about. Just do something. He's not trying to rouse you to an abstraction. It's like do something with your life. Yeah. Exemplification. I think there's something that's incredibly simple, which is about how we underestimate the effect that we have by authentically connecting with each other 
by just meeting and being honest about how we are. And that's why I wanted to read this poem from William Stafford that's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as the elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not to recognise the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool ourselves, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Strong, lovely patterns in that poem. The warning, the love, the beauty, the relationship. Seems a very good way to say goodbye to a set of lovely relationships that hopefully people have, you know, just had a little dip into in this conversation. It's lovely to see your faces, lovely to hear your voices. Thanks very much, all of you, for taking part in the conversation today. Thanks to you, Satya for reading the poem and for bringing your beautiful mind to bear on a conversation about points of light. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to sit with you all. And thanks to you, Subhadasi, for taking time out from tea time and from playtime to talk to us about the matters of the heart. It's been a real pleasure, Chandradasa. Thank you for inviting me and lovely to be with Nandavajra and Satya and yourself. And you, Nandavadra, thanks a million for getting a lovely conversation started. It's interesting because we've known each other for quite a long time. I should probably say in that way that people do on podcasts, you know, full transparency. Future Dharma, who you work for, is one of the bodies that helps fund the Buddha Centre Online, which runs the Dharma Toolkit platform. And when I wrote to you, I didn't know this is what we'd end up talking about. So it's very lovely to kind of uncover this aspect of you being, as it were, just through something as simple as a, a quick, hey, will you be in our podcast? Well, thank you very much, Chandra Dasa. Thanks for drawing out that particular aspect of my being. Doesn't often see the light. And yeah, just a, a delight to be with such a Leela and Subhadasi and you. And maybe we come back again at some point. Yeah, let's make it a poetry monthly. It's about time, surely. And thanks to all of you for listening, for taking part in community, even in just a way like that, just tuning into these voices, these stories, these lives that you're connected to in mysterious ways like Indra's Net. We're aware of your beautiful jewels shining out there in the world, whatever you're going through. You can join us if you like. Each weekday, we have a couple of meditations that you can go and connect to. If you go to the buddhacenter.com slash toolkit, you'll find all the times for online meditation. It's a very lovely experience of watching these little panels of light appear on your screen in the morning. Everybody smiles at each other and then falls silent for 40 minutes. It's beautiful. It's a great way to use the internet. It's probably what it was designed for, I'm sure. 
be well, stay safe. Remember, as Nandavadra encouraged us, that we're doing that because we're connected to each other. And we'll see you again soon for another episode. Bye for now.